Father God, we thank you for Brandon and the gift he is to us. Lord, we pray you'd use him powerfully today. May the words from his mouth be laser-focused, drenched in your goodness, and ignited by your spirit. And may we be able to have ears to listen and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, friends. How are you all doing today? Well, great. Okay. That was a solid tenth of you responding. Hey, thanks for being honest. I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah. Hi, I have the distinct pleasure of bringing God's Word to you today. Uh, I'm really excited about that. Uh, I've been kind of mulling over this for a few weeks now, and so uh, it's excited that the day is finally here. Um, a quick disclosure, uh, there aren't handouts today uh, because I had a little bit of an error with trying to print them earlier, and so that's on me. I didn't prepare for the worst case scenario. And speaking of preparation, that's what we're talking about today. Uh, yeah, I'm, I've always been a big fan of irony and me having a humble pie all over my face. That's also a thing I'm a fan of. So... Um, Question. Leading up to all this, you know, we've been going over relationships for um, three Sundays now, and then we had a nice uh, lesson on it uh, this past Wednesday. Now, the question to you is, are you maybe a little tired? Are you maybe a little tired of all the lessons on relationships? Be honest. You probably are. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe you really love this. Good. Here's the deal. This sermon is all about you and relationships, but also you and relationships. And so the thing is, we're going to be talking about preparation. How do we prepare ourselves for this? How do we prepare ourselves for relationships, for marriage, for legacies, lasting legacies with the families that we, we form? This is important stuff. I understand maybe you're a little tired. Maybe, maybe this is a bit done for you. I urge you, brothers and sisters, this day, find it within you. Find that God gives you this peace about it, this attentiveness, because preparation is key. This is key to making marriages that last, that thrive. Not just like, oh, we got to stick together, but like we enjoy each other and we enjoy the family that we have created together. At the end of the day, that's what we want, right? Yeah? Yes. Yeah. Marriages that thrive. And that's what today is going to be leading us towards, or so I hope. So let's talk preparation. Hockey, America's true sport. Uh, right? One person agrees. Thanks. Um, so hockey is, uh, I love it so much. It is, um, it is uh, respective rivalries, ferocious fights, stressful shootouts, and lasting legacies that culminate in the quest for Stanley Cup. Now, uh, can a team just show up at the Stanley Cup Finals with no invitation, just arrive and expect to compete? No, they have to compete to get there. They have to, um, not only do they have to uh, earn it, but they have to play over 82 games, actually exactly 82 games, over the course of the season and compete against 29 other teams for one of the few spots in the playoffs. Once they get to the playoffs, then they have to beat people uh, to, in order just to get to the finals itself. And so, you see that they earn it. So before and in between every game, they have countless practices and go over countless scenar scenarios and plays. Why? Because talent alone doesn't get you to the playoffs. A solid game plan alone will not get you anywhere without the proper preparation to execute. 
Practice hones that skill. Preparation involves the team, takes it further, and shapes the team's legacy. I hope you're not tired of the word legacy. I'm going to use it about 50 more times. Um, so take the Oilers, for example. Uh, a few key players, they're, they're a hockey team, by the way, for those of you who don't know. And the reason why you might not have heard of them is because they're literally the worst team in the sport and have been for a while. <laughs> so um, a few key players with plenty of talent have been traded to Edmonton Oilers. You know, and it's like, okay, so how, how is that going to, should it be good? Um, you've got this star, you've got this other star, you've got a pretty decent um, power forward. But the thing is, what do we know about the team? They're garbage. And they have been for a long time. Just They can't rely on the talent of any given individual. They can't rely on just what they've got to coast their way into a cup. It takes preparation, it takes teamwork, it takes game plan. And unfortunately, they don't have that going for them. So, we're to prepare. Men, we're to prepare. Prepare for what lies ahead. Prepare now to become the godly husband that will honor your wife. The godly father who will lead a great family. So we're talking, here's what we're talking. I'm talking goatee. I'm talking goatee. I'm talking polo, short, polo shirt tucked into the khakis. Khakis is key. The khakis are, is what makes you a dad. Um, and ladies, don't think I forgot about you. Ladies, well, I'm not as familiar, but let's go with ankle-length skirts in a nice floral print. Uh, bonnets, I think. Is that, yeah? I think that's, that's marriage material. And then uh, plenty, countless decorative crosses over every wall. Innumerable. No, see, the legacy you shape with your life is what matters. Not so much the having the dad pants or the, the, the mom dress. So, so we're to prepare for what lies ahead in a way that's honoring God. And it begins now, outside of the relationship, or inside of the relationship if you're already there, relationships pave the way for an engagement one day, engagements to marriage, and then families and legacy. You see, dating is fun, exciting, new, but it holds with it a great wealth of importance. There's a great weight to it. It's not something to just be fooled around with. You see, I will not just one day wake up years from now and say, wow, I've lived an incredible life and have left quite the legacy. Like, just wake up and it's like, yeah, everything was great. No, legacies are shaped day by day in those special moments and in the, very, the seemingly ordinary ones as well. See, this is why we date well. This is why we prepare right now. Right here. So, dis disclaimer. See, the problem with plans is that, unfortunately, plans don't always work out exactly how we intended them to, because that's the thing, there are plans. But God's plans, the plans that He has for us, plans to prosper us, plans for the best life, that's the kind of plan that sticks. And so, we pray that each and every day, our plans, we give them up to God and that they're shaped by Him. Our desires are shaped by Him, as our character is as well. And so preparing ourselves in that manner is what will last. While my idea of a dream girl has changed since uh, even two years ago, what preparing to be the husband that deserves that woman, that's what lasts. So how does a Christian date well? What are the physical, emotional, and spiritual boundaries that we must establish in a relationship? 
So, before we get too deep into this, a few things to consider first, in the, uh, before and in the midst of a relationship. How is your relationship with Jesus? In all honesty, this is key. How are you in your relationship with Jesus? What's that look like? On a daily basis? Weekly basis? Is it just a couple times a week that you're thinking of Him? I don't know. So pause every so often and take stock of your relationship. Look at it, the relationship with Christ and His Word. Your life, your habits, your character, do they reflect a life that is uniquely and unmistakably marked by, and shaped by a close relationship with Christ? Are you molded by time well spent reflecting upon God's Word? Tough questions. And if I look at these, being honest... There's plenty of days where I really just miss the mark here. So, the next question is, are you believing any cultural lies? Romantic comedies are entertaining. Love a good rom-com, okay? Um, and, and Nicholas Sparks knows how to write a book that tugs at your very core and feel the great highs and deep lows of an incredible romance. But if we pause and give it thought, are we allowing this to shape our understanding of relationships in the everyday? Are we maybe getting a little too fantastical with it? I, I know that there's probably going to be a lot of pushback with that, and I understand, just please hear me out. So, do we find that we believe the fantastic tales to be ordinary, that a fiery romance with a beautiful dame against all odds is the norm, or is even desirable? What are the issues of living together, sleeping together? Are there these things that are, are these things promoted in Scripture? By no means. And so these we, we need to take stock of these issues that we're having placed in front of us and plastered as as if they're the golden ideals in front of us on the silver screen. Are they really things that we're to value, to look for? Do I need to have this fiery romance or Maybe, should it be more of a deep, close, best friendship with this individual that grows into a beautiful marriage and a family legacy that lasts, that honors the Lord, instead of maybe just like, wow, she's so hot. Wow, I'm so, like, we're so perfect for each other. We finish each other's sandwiches. It's just great. <laughs> but actually pausing and realizing, okay, maybe there's other values that we're not we're not actually acknowledging here. And so, I'm not to, here to speak ill of these films or these books. I enjoy it too. I would merely urge us all to be cautious of the values we absorb. And this goes for all things, all cultural things. Be cautious of the values you're absorbing. And so, the third question, do you truly, truly accept that marriage is for holiness before happiness? Now, Daniel made a great point last week in how happiness, the hap, is circumstantial. Yeah. Circumstantial. It's, it's not something that lasts. Things make you happy. Moments make you happy. It's not like all things above everything happiness. No, it's joy that lasts. And so, marriage, God didn't create marriage for happiness primarily. He created it for holiness. He created it so that we unite with one other. We, that man with woman unites together under his lordship in the marriage. 
that we seek to glorify Him in all that we say and do, making each other better by pointing each other to Christ. See, if I were to ask you what makes a marriage worth having, how would you respond? Is it having someone to care for you, to respect you, to love you? You, 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 is it all about you? Is it all about what you get out of the end of this? Or, in marriage, is it a consistent daily giving of yourself, putting your other before you? I'd argue for the latter, personally. So, I want you all to hear this. Marriage isn't about you. It isn't about what you get. Marriage is the joining together of two people under the covering of the Lord our God. It's not about you getting someone to care for you, to, to mother you, or locking down a man so that you'll never be lonely ever again. It's not that. And those things are both very much lies. It's not about that. So be reasonable. Another thing to be reasonable is our expectations, not to set them too high nor too low. Now, we'll get to that, but don't settle. Don't you dare settle for anything less than God's best for you. I, I, I weep for those of us that do. I've seen what settling looks like in, in a marriage and in relationships, and it's, it's sickening. So, so who do they need to be? Who do they need to be? Well, the thing is, it's good to have wants. It's good to have needs. Like, they need to be Christian. They need to be this. Da, 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 da. But be honest with yourself. Are you setting your expectations too high? Do they, high? Do they need to be this specific ethnicity? Do they need to have this specific color of eyes? Um, and if they don't, then nope. Out. See ya. No. Bye, Felicia. No. That's not how... It needs to be. There are some things that, yes, we should stand firm on. And it's like, it's got, they have to be Christian. They have to love the Lord. And, and, and we have to have a similar mindset on that. But then there's also other things that it's like, we have some leeway. Do they need to love classic rock as much as you do? <laughs> it helps. But do they need to? Do they need to have this, the favorite bands, the same favorite foods, uh, the same favorite films. Let's be honest here. But more importantly, who do you need to be? Who do you need to be? And we're going to get to that later. Um, so tempered expectations. Who do you, they need to be? Who do you need to be? And what do you do on your dates? Are you being intentional? Are you actually planning them out? Or are you saying like, hey, come over. We'll figure something out. Because that's kind of, that kind of puts you in a bad situation there. Because then boredom starts to set in, thoughts start to go awry. Anyway, I don't know. Actually, I do know. That's not good. Um, so, so, <laughs> so, when do you start dating? But seriously, when are you actually ready? And now there's a sense that it's like, am I ever going to be 100% perfect? No. No. Not this side of heaven. So, but that being said... Are you actually taking steps to prepare your heart and be ready? And, and also, when you finally find someone and you're like really like just love, love this person, are you perhaps marrying them in your mind before your, the rest of yourself is ready to? We should not grow so attached to someone that like, I can't marry them right now. I can't marry them for another year or so. And yet we're inseparable. Like I couldn't see myself with anyone else. Uh, like I'll die before I end up with anyone else. And then all of a sudden it crashes and burns. And wow, everything's terrible. 
Let's be careful about that. Let's be careful about not marrying people in our minds before we're actually ready. And so, Matt Chandler has this to say on dating. Great guy. Um, so, what works is being in public, guarding space alone, not putting yourself in situations. I think that singles have a tendency to think more highly of their own self-control than they should. I think that singles have a tendency to think more highly of their own self-control than they should. I know that to be true myself. <laughs> Going into dating, I thought more highly of my own self-control and boundaries than I should have. All of a sudden, lines start to blur a lot easier when you're not prepared. And so on this note of being in public, include your friends. Group dates are tons of fun. It doesn't even need to be labeled as a group date, but like you're doing stuff with your friends, invite this person you're interested in to come along. You're in public eye, you're amongst friends, and the thing, the thing is, if you have good friends, they know you really well. And see, in being in a relationship, you tend to overlook some red flags. I know that from personal experience. And so you tend to overlook some red flags, whereas your friends actually have probably a more keen eye than you do. And they're actually able to say like, hey, hold up. What she said right there is really messed up. That's not okay. Or what you guys are doing together in your free time is not alright. Invite friends to come along. They'll keep you accountable. They'll hold you and, you know, this person you're interested in to a higher standard. And so, I want to conclude this particular section before we move on to character with eight lies. The eight lies that we fall for in this single, not yet married life. Here we are. First, I'm selfish because I'm still single. And I don't have anyone to care for my needs or feelings. That's why I need my me time. That's why I need it to be about me. Because no one's caring for me. Or, I'm anxious because I'm still single. I don't know if God will ever bring me a spouse. I'm impatient because I'm still single, and I've waited a long, long time to be married. First of all, you're in high school and junior high. No, you haven't waited a long time. <laughs> Sorry to break it to you. Um, so, um, I can be cold and indifferent towards others because I'm still single. Hmm? Uh, because I'm still single, and I have a hard enough time dealing with my own stuff. Okay, then maybe get your stuff sorted out, and then you're ready for a relationship. That doesn't fix you. Relationships don't fix what's already broken. Amen. It's two broken people coming together, making the better of each other under God, but you still bring all your garbage with you into a relationship, so don't think that that fixes it. Don't think that the magic fairy wand of poof, you have a changed relationship status, fixes you. It doesn't. Broken people, dating broken people, is always going to be messy. So, I don't value virtue and integrity like I should because I'm still single. I'll work on those things when I get married and have a family. No. You set boundaries, you set virtues and an identity now. That's what lasts. And then I'm harsh towards others because I'm still single. They don't understand how t difficult my life is. I'm undisciplined and I keep sinning because I'm still single. Freedom feels good and no one knows, cares, or is affected by my behavior because I'm single. No, I'm depressed and miserable because I'm still single and I won't really be happy until I'm married. No, no, all of these things, no. 
what you need is Jesus. He's the one that helps you. He's the one that helps mold you and make you new and, and, and makes you that person that will one day marry someone that doesn't get fixed by the magic wand of marriage. Okay, that's fun. Well, anyway, I'm going to keep pressing on. So, when you do find someone and you're in a relationship with a great person, don't let your mind marry them before the rest of you can. And what if, what if we were more concerned with building great lasting friendships than to make, having to make it romantic far too early? Best friendships are what lasts in this type of scenario. The reason why so many people, uh, why we see so many people in the church that have like thriving marriages is because they worked out, they figured out the secret, which is best friendship first. And then that continues to blossom into this beautiful romance and lasting legacy. Let's move on to character, shall we? Manners maketh the man. They do. Now, what we value informs our character. What we value informs our actions. Do we hold God and His Word so dear, with such value, that it shapes us, that it molds us, that our relationship with Him truly reinvents and redefines who we are, what we hold dear, and how we treat others? Well, I ask of you, do we hold God and His Word dear? Truly, truly, do we do this? Is this our life? Is Christ our life? Not just part. Is Christ our life? Key verse here that informed a lot of this next section. James 1, 27 in the ESV. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, thank you. Um, now, you're, you're looking at me like, okay, where's relationship in this? I don't see the word marriage, don't see the word dating, as if it's in the Bible. Um, you don't see any of that. Don't see family. Here's how it informs us. To visit orphans and widows, that is to say that faith produces a selfless individual. He shows mercy and love to the oppressed. Orphans and widows who frequent... This, this, this is a common Old Testament theme. The caring for the widows and orphans. It's a show that if you're caring for the least of these, if you're that selfless that you're honestly, genuinely, from your own self, caring for the least of these, that shows your character. That shows that you've been shaped and molded by a true relationship with your God, your King. Now this reveals the character that I am to have and to seek in the other. Selflessness. Now, to keep oneself unstained from the word, that's another world, sorry, world, um, another key part there. So, uh, you remain unstained from this world. Jane, James uses this sacrificial language otherwise, uh, elsewhere, as the, the lamb without blemish. Uh, it describes a purely religious person. Now, religion, that word is so stained with bad connotations and, and bad associations. But what we're getting at here is more so, maybe more appropriately said, true faith. Let's go with that, so as not to make it all weird in your minds. You know, you don't want that. So, these things are what are to be sought after. 
These things are to inform our thoughts, our actions, character, and as we're discussing today, our plans, our preparations. And so, selfishness or our ego ruins how we look at marriage. It truly does. At our relationships, our friendships, etc., selfishness taints everything, ruins everything. Look at how it ruins our relationship with God. Oh God, I need this, 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 this. And it never is that you're going to Him because... Thanks. Thank you for what I do have. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this breath. For that, I, that I have a job that I'm able to get some money from and that, I, that I'm able to have this beautiful family that loves me. My folks, that I, though I disagree with, they care for me. Our selfishness taints everything. That such pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. That's what selfishness, that's what big ego, that's what pride tells you. It's not true. We're not competent to run our own lives without God. We can't have the best life without God. It just isn't the case. And so... What makes someone selfless? I've, I love this. Okay, a lot of what I'm about to say whenever I do this, right here, eyes up here, whenever I do this, quote from Tim Keller, because Tim Keller's rad. Um, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. That's kind of what we think of when we think of selflessness, self-forgetfulness, but hang with me here. All right, a truly gospel humble person is so taken up with his Lord that he is freed from the constant need to think about himself. This is not selfishness, pride, big ego, nor is it a hurt ego. See, in Scripture we find Paul, the way he deals with people, the way he deals with critics and his own thoughts of himself, couldn't be more different. He cares very little if he is judged by men, but he also goes one step further to say that he won't judge himself. God is my judge. He knows the true darkness of my hearts. And, 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 heart, heart. Singular, um, not plural. I don't have two hearts. Don't worry about it. Um, anyway, so you see that his sins and his identity are not connected. He refuses to connect them because the thing is, your sin doesn't make you you. Amen. Your sin is something that unfortunately the fallen self of yourself does. And then that's rebellion against God. But the thing is, at the end of the day, don't let that define you because the Lord your God has forgiven you. You need only return to Him and accept that forgiveness, that free gift of grace. And so, if we don't let our sins define us on our identity, nor should we let our accomplishments. We shouldn't be like, oh, I manage the website. Oh, I've been a leader for this long. Oh, I've got this going for me. Hey, I'm managing to hold down three jobs and have something of a social life. It's not about what you can do or what you do. It's about who you are and who you've been made to be by Lord God. That's right. So don't connect your identity with your sins, your shortcomings, or your accomplishments. So, in that we find, maybe now we can arrive at selflessness. See, it's a gospel-rooted humility. Now, humility is not, oh, I'm no one, or no, don't, pr don't praise me, I, I'm the worst. You see, Paul call, calls himself the chief of all sinners, but that doesn't mean that defines him. That doesn't define who he is, and it doesn't limit him from what he can do by the grace of God. 
You see, Tim Keller writes, The thing that we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person, selflessness, self-forgetfulness, truly gospel-humble person, is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Not themselves, us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself, but thinking of myself less. It means an ego that is not puffed up, but filled up with our identity in God, knowing that it comes from God, who we are. All of my best things, all that makes me a cool dude, is from God. It's no work of my own. And so it's not about self-esteem. You see, Paul simply refuses to play that game. I don't care about your opinion, but I don't care much about my opinion either. God's what matters. God is the one that we seek to just honor and glorify in every bit of our life. So, moving forward. This self-forgetfulness is a practical, tangible, proper understanding of what the Bible has to say about us. Fallen, yet forgiven, renewed human beings. It's not about us. It never was, and it never should be. Amen? Amen. We live for Christ. We live for Him in our time together when we're with family, friends, work, school, practice, in times of rest. We live for Christ in the every moment. We live a life marked by Christ that is not obsessed with yourself. It's not about what we deserve. It's not about what we need. It's not about what we serve. It's, it's more so... Sorry. Getting ahead of myself. Getting too excited. All right. Um, it's about who we serve. God and the other. Serving God. Loving God. In other words, loving God. Loving others. A life well spent, truly loving God and loving others. This is how we prepare. This is how we know that we're on the right path. For our relationships, for our spouse, for our kids, for our legacy. And that our legacy, not point to ourselves, but to Christ. That's, good. That's what's key. So, but how, guys? I'm just a junior higher. How do I get there? So, uh, I'm not actually a junior higher, for those of you who were confused by that last statement. I'm merely playing a character. All right. So, thank you, thank you. Um, do, do you not realize that it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that we get the verdict before the performance? Let me break that down. The verdict before the performance. That you were saved, redeemed, not because of any accomplishments of yours, or how little you sin, or what good you do, but rather, you are saved and continually made new. Because of God. Because He just loves you. And He wants you. And He wants true relationship with you. And so because of these things, you get the verdict before the performance. Now, because I've been saved by Christ, that changes me at my very core. So here's the thing. The verdict leads to the performance. The verdict leads to the performance. You see, the ver Tim Keller writes, I love the quote in this guy, it's great. Um, you see, the verdict is in, and now I perform on the basis of the verdict. Because I'm saved, I now perform on the basis of that. Because he loves me and accepts me, I do not have to do things just to build up my resume, my repertoire, my, how people perceive me. I don't need people to love me. It's not just so I can... I can feel better about myself and I'm getting ahead of myself. I do not have these things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people. 
Not just so I can feel better about myself, not so I can just fill up this emptiness deep inside, because that emptiness has been filled by Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so, I want to remind you, right now it's the season of Lent, and that's a strange concept to a good number of you. Now, what in, in this Lent, it's this sense of, of, of this understanding, and I'll pull up... Um, what I, what I found the other day. It was really nice. But it's this season leading up to Easter in which we become increasingly thoughtful of what holds us. What has a hold of us? You see, Lent is a time in which we anticipate Christ's victory that we know has already happened. Amen? Mm-hmm. Um, so his victory over the darkness of sin and death. As C.S. Lewis says, this season is a kind of happiness and wonder that also makes you serious. And so, it invites us to make our hearts ready for remembering the reality of that we're broken human beings, but as the days go on, as we move closer to Easter, there's this excitement, this anticipation, because God's redeeming grace is there, it's tangible, it's right there for us to grasp. That's Lent. In, in so many words. And so, oftentimes in Lent, it starts off with Ash Wednesday, in which we mark our, our forehead with ashes as a way to symbolize repentance. Because people would toss themselves into ashes in the Old Testament times as a symbol of repentance. Or they would sprinkle it on their heads as a sign of like mourning. And so we mourn over our sins, our shortcomings, but we also know that, unlike Old Testament, we're, we're forgiven. Like, the verdict is in. And so... That let's let this season of Lent maybe be a little more intentional than it has been in the past. That we set this season aside for, for good practices that shape good character. Why? Because God has already forgiven us. Amen. And so, there's, we find that there's strength in community. And in, in Lent, and in knowing that other people are already in this season with you, there's strength in that community, knowing that there's strength in knowing that your fellow brothers and sisters are like are likewise uh, struggling to know and, and, and to give up the bad. To give up the bad and to make the good in order to shape good character and break ties with the old man, the old self. Not the old man as in like your father, don't break ties. But like, you know, the old self. Like who I, who I am hates who I've been. I don't like the me that was before Christ's salvation. I don't it wasn't a life worth living, you know? But now, now that I have redeeming grace in my life, that changes me, that molds me, and that affects my everyday. I pray that each and every one of us will make the most of this season. That together we might glorify Christ in setting aside our old self and partnering with Him to create the new man continually, day by day. The person ready for a relationship, a lasting one, with a beautiful spouse that glorifies the Lord and brings out the best in me as I bring out the best in them. Let this Lenten season be a season that you give up your supposed adolescence, this like, oh, I'm still just a kid. I'm just doing kid things. You're a junior higher and or high schooler. Well, not and. Um, you're either a junior higher, a high schooler, or a leader or a parent. I see, I see a couple of you in here. And, um, and the thing is, Put that past you. In Old Testament times, once you're the age of 13, you're considered a man. You'd go out into the wilderness for a time, and then you'd come back a man, a ferocious man. No, um, 
like Tony Adamo style. Um, just a beastly beard and everything. Um, and like 20 knives on you at any given time. Um, no, just kidding. So, just like three. Um, anyway, so many things in Scripture point to that. that there's no such thing as adolescence. So let's not believe that lie, amen? Let's grow. Let's grow up. Right now, let's start becoming the men and women that are ready. That are ready for what's next. That are ready for the awesome relationship that God has in store for you. A relationship with friends and a relationship with a spouse and a family. And a lasting legacy. Dream with me, friends. We can get there one day. Prepare now. There's no such thing as adolescence. Just boyhood and then adulthood. So let us cease to act like the children that society believes that we are. Because we're not. We're men and women of God. Amen? Amen. And so, let's act like it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this Lent season. The season that we get to look at some of the more gross things about us. Some of the sins, Lord. And realize that's not who we are. This isn't in our identity. This isn't what defines us, Lord. But who you made us to be, that's what shapes us. That's what molds us in the everyday. And so we pray that we make the most of this season, that it not just be a season of woe is me, oh, let me give up some chocolate, but it's a season that points us to you. That in our craving for these things that we give up, we realize what we truly should be craving, what our heart's desire is, is not this chocolate, but is you, our Lord, our King, our Savior. And so we pray that in this season, we're preparing ourselves, not just for Easter, but for the future, Lord, mm -hmm. for the relationships you have in store for us, the people that we become friends with, the, the, the person that we're to marry one day, start a family with, with beautiful kids or not if we're not into that. But I just pray, Lord, that we partner with you in preparing, that we give up this adolescence. There's no such thing. Continually mold us into the men and women of God that we know you called us to be. And the deal is, friends, you're already men and women of God. You're going to look different tomorrow and the next day. But you're already a man and or, or a woman of God. Let's act like it. Mm -hmm. Let it shape our hearts and our desires, mm -hmm. our passions. Let it shape our future. Yeah. Lord, thank you for our sweet time together. We pray that we glorify you and honor you in all that we say and do. Amen. 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 Thanks, Brandon. Okay. Thanks,